FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for a brand new week of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Leggett. I'm very happy to have all of you with us out there. Um, just for a quick note, uh, I missed uh, last week a few days. I uh, <laughs> I had what I would I think is fair to call some pretty intense oral surgery uh, last week, and it's taken me a few days to recover. And I, I also have to say that as I hear my own voice, I realize that it's not quite back. So I hope you'll Forgive me if I'm uh, not not getting out my vowels or consonants as well as I ought to today, but I am very happy to be back with all of you uh, for the show. And we have a great uh, panel lined up for today, starting with my Monday partner on Political Rewind, Patricia Murphy, a political reporter and columnist. She writes the Political Insider column for the AJC, and she oversees the Jolt, which you can read every morning at AJC.com. Hi, Patricia. Good morning, Bill. Glad you're here with us today. Um, you know, one of the things that you wrote about in the Jolt this morning as the lead item, we're going to actually get to first. We're going to talk a little bit more about the special grand jury and where Fonnie Willis is headed. We're going to talk about how uh, Governor Kemp continues to build out his national uh, presence. We're going to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene. But as you point out in the jolt this morning, uh, the city of Buckhead is coming up for votes in a Senate committee today, and we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Um, we're joined also by Michael Thurman, the CEO of DeKalb County. Michael, it's awfully good to have you back with us. Good morning, Bill. Great to be with you. You know, the great ones play injured. So that just speaks to your position and your. Uh... <laughs> Hi. Hi. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, Mike, by the way, I want to tell you this first time you're back since Patricia and I spent an hour talking about your life and career a couple weeks ago. And as I said at the time uh, after the show, we, we had more reaction from listeners to your story than almost anything I can remember on this show in a long time. It was very, very gratifying. And I'm glad to have you back today as a panelist on the show. Uh, thank you to you and Patricia for honoring me with the opportunity to share. Uh, it was such a delight. It's available online. People ought to look it up at our uh, on our podcast or at our website. Andre Gillespie is back with us, professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnston Institute for the study of race and difference at Emory. How are you, Andra? I'm well, how are you? Great, great. And we're also joined by Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University and soon to be the sole chair of the political science department at uh, Georgia State. Amy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Um, all right, let's get going. As, as I said, let, let's start with this Buckhead story, Patricia. You know, people who follow 
the General Assembly, especially in more recent years, realize that each session kind of takes on a life of its own. Certain issues take on a life of their own. There are things that legislative leaders go into a session saying, we're not touching this. We don't want to have anything to do with this issue. And then for many reasons, including uh, a, a, a rising up of constituents, uh, political consider partisan political considerations, suddenly bills take on a life of their own. That was true of the abortion, six-week abortion ban. And it appears at least temporarily, that's what's happening with the Buckhead City uh, measure, which is before a Senate committee debate, two different bills. And as you pointed out to me in a note over the weekend, this is as as far this measure has gotten farther, despite the fact that leadership has said they're not interested in it, than it's ever gotten before. Yes, and Bill, I can update you that the um, Senate committee has now passed those two Buckhead bills, um, passed the bill to first split Atlanta into two parts to de-annex Buckhead away from Atlanta, and then to create the city of Buckhead City to um, be the municipality in Buckhead instead. Um, that means that it will go to the Senate Rules Committee, and then that is the committee that would then send it on to a vote by the full Senate. The chairman of that Senate Rules Committee is also a co-sponsor of the Buckhead bills, so we expect it to get favorable treatment in that committee, of course. And then, you know, we'll have to see what state senators do. I think Democrats are going to be universally against this bill, of course, these two bills. Um, but it will be a real test for Republicans in the chamber, and I would say especially for um, Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones. The last lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, killed this bill before it ever got to committee. Um, Burt Jones was the, was a sponsor of that bill last year when he was a state senator. Um, and this year he did not keep it out of committee. He let it go through committee. And now it's going to come to a floor vote. Um, the people who oppose Buckhead City believe they have the votes to stop this on the Senate floor. Um, but crazy things happen once your constituents start calling and nobody knows really exactly where this goes from here. But right now they think that a Senate vote would not be favorable, but we'll have to see what happens. And and Burt Jones is going to be a key player in this. Yeah, Mike Thurman, uh, Burt Jones campaigned uh, for lieutenant governor in the primary as a supporter of Buckhead Cityhood. But in all of his pronouncements since then about the agenda that he was going to pursue this session, it was noticeably absent. And yet uh, we'll, we'll see where he stands as he presides over the Senate, if it does pass out of rules, which Patricia thinks it will, and come to the floor, Mike. Well, first of all, great reporting, uh, Patricia, uh, in short order. Uh, through the jolt, but clearly the key player in this is Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones. Uh, he, I think more than any other single person, will determine the fate of this legislation uh, in the Senate. Uh, he and his lieutenants will ultimately determine whether uh, it comes to a vote and then whether or not it will ultimately pass. No one really knows what will happen now, uh, now that it has uh, been voted out of committee. But all eyes will be on the uh, newly minted lieutenant governor in terms of what happens next. Yeah, the other thing, of course, that's really interesting about this bill or all both of these bills is that they are all being sponsored and co-sponsored by people who live quite far outside of Buckhead. 
Um, the actual uh, senators who represent Buckhead, there's three of them, uh, are staunchly against this bill. Uh, this is all being proposed. And there's some other portions about it which are also fascinating. Um, I, too, would actually really like to be one of the part-time city council members because it appears that I would be paid um, almost as much as I'm paid to do my full-time job. And so that sounds delightful. Uh, the new mayor is proposed to be paid more than the governor. Um, and as uh, the reporting in the AGC showed, they are proposing that the city of Atlanta would have to sell portions uh, to uh, this new city at incredibly uh, low prices, including uh, $1,000 for a school, including everything in it and acres at $100 that generally sell upwards of a couple million. And so there's there's a lot of also very technical parts of it which sort of drive problems. But I think the biggest issue is that those who represent Buckhead are not in fact in favor of this. And so it is an interesting also political play of the fact that those who are most strongly in favor of this are not actually residents of Buckhead and actually not even really residents of the metro Atlanta area. Many of them are coming from right quite far away in the state, but yet wanting to suggest that they know better how it is that the city of Atlanta should be run. Andra? Yeah, I mean, that raises all of the issues that kind of come uh, from this. And so if it's not you live there and you actually know what's happening in Buckhead to why are, are, are you pushing this particular issue? And this has been a larger question, not necessarily about sort of proximity and who can sort of sponsor these bills before the state legislature, but like what's been going on with incorporation in the city for, you know, the last 20 years where it's been allowed. And then, you know, for the last 50 years where this was, was being advocated. And so I've done work with my uh, colleague, Michael Leo, Owens on this. We we ran a survey um, in Eagles Landing in Henry County when they were proposing this. And one of the big questions that uh, motivated us was whether or not um, we could detect racial animus predicting support for the creation of Eagles Landing. And we don't there uh, because uh, it was super complicated. And the complexity of the Eagles Landing plan that involved de-annexation and up from Stockbridge and annexation uh, of parts of, of, of unincorporated Henry County, right, probably do that one. Right. We could think about the failure of some of the incorporation uh, battles that were happening in Cobb County this year, where it was rejected, probably because it was hastily done. I'm going to have to do some more work on that in order to confirm that. Um, and then when I look at this Buckhead one, I have data from the 2021 mayoral election cycle where I do ask a question about Buckhead cityhood. And here is where the people who are most supportive of it are the ones that tend to score the most racially conservative. And so I'm being nice by saying these are the ones who you might view as having really problematic racial views. So they're so I, I think we have to sort of question this. And then we also have to question uh, the efficacy and the strategy behind creating a city. So yeah, if this is being motivated by prejudice in any way, that's not good. But just from a practical standpoint, there's a cachet with being the toniest neighborhood in Atlanta that I think you lose when you're just your own city. There's also a cachet for Atlanta being on the cusp of being a major city population-wise. And now you cut that, right? There are all of these things that are problematic with doing it, uh, with, with making this type of decision. This 
is why people in Atlanta and legislators from Buckhead in particular oppose this measure. And so all of these have to be brought out and have to be debated before you make such a decision that has, you know, extreme consequences. Not only that, right? I mean, the reason why it has to be the city of Buckhead City, which sounds redundant, is because there's already a Buckhead, Georgia. So just like basic stuff that we have to think about that I just don't think has been really thought through. Uh, there's a lot more to unpack, and I want to keep doing that, Patricia. And and let's uh, uh, pick up on what Amy talked about a minute ago. W- one of the measure, one of the aspects of this measure that was so fascinating to me is that the bills actually set the price for the city of Buckhead to be able to make purchases from the city of Atlanta. They would be able to buy parks in Buckhead for a hundred dollars an acre as Amy pointed out, including Chastain Park and Memorial Park. They also uh, would be able to buy fire stations for $5,000 a piece, and they could buy any additional Atlanta-owned buildings like schools for $1,000, including all the fixtures inside. Um, Before we went on the air, producer Chase McGee said, wow, I'm glad to know I can finally afford to buy property in in Atlanta. But I mean, these, this, this along with the salaries uh, seems almost, I don't know what to make of, of, of all this, Patricia. So there is just no rhyme or reason to any of the numbers in either of these bills. We have tried to ask the sponsors, why did you pick $225,000 a year for this mayor? Um, They wouldn't answer our questions in a committee. Randy Robertson, who's the sponsor of the bill, said, well, you need that salary to get the right kind of people to apply for the job, Um, whatever that means. Um, But, you know, I would say underlying that are some, other than the numbers that are, are, are just kind of ridiculous. They're just laughable. The underlying legislation has major, major problems with it, including the fact that it requires the city of Atlanta to sell off property that's not currently inside the city limits. That would include the property where the police and fire training center has always been. And there is a new one being proposed that's obviously quite controversial. Um, This exact bill would require that land to be sold and the proceeds divided between Atlanta and a hypothetical Buckhead City. It also lets the city of Buckhead City get 20% of all cash reserves of the city of Atlanta. Um, And it creates this unbelievable precedent of any lawmaker anywhere in the state getting a phone call from somebody in Savannah or Athens or Macon to say, you know, I really do not like the other half of our city. We don't like what's happening. um, And we wanna vote to break away. We want our own city. We wanna break the wealthiest part off from the poorest part. And we think we should have the right to do that. Um, Arguing to allow the citizens to vote is a really strong argument, I think with Republicans. Um, But the question is, are the voters being given the full story of what they would be getting in the process? Yeah, Andra, I want to let this sink in. The Atlanta Police Training Center, the subject of such intense controversy, under the terms of this legislation, would be sold off. And not only that, um, but there are questions that, that Patricia and her colleagues at the Jolt reported as to whether the city could even afford to pay for what is supposed to be its share of the cost of the training center if it loses that 
tax base in uh, in the in this in the city uh, uh, separating itself. Yeah, I mean, one of the other things that's actually really kind of interesting and important about this is thinking about uh, what happens to liabilities, you know, you know, outstanding bonds, debts. Like this was the issue uh, with Stockbridge um, and, and and Eagles Landing because that wasn't, it wasn't clear uh, throughout most of that election cycle who was going to be responsible for the existing debts of the part of Stockbridge that was going to be coming over. And so I think that ultimately when people start to have those conversations, they may actually rethink this. This looks like this was set up as though, well, hey, we're going to do this like a divorce. And so if you're getting divorced and you have to look at all your assets. Oftentimes people have to sell stuff in order for the property to be split between the partners. And you can do that in a marriage, but you cannot do this when you're talking about a city. Um, the other thing that's actually, you know, I think really important is when we start to think about like what the exorbitant kind of price points are for paying members of city council for paying the mayor. Yeah, I hear that argument about how you have to pay for quality and professionalism and all those kinds of things. And people who are of a corporate mindset and who are high asset individuals would absolutely absolutely think that way. But, you know, having written a book about politics in Newark, New Jersey, right, where also, right, the mayor made a lot of money, the city council made a lot of money because it was supposed to be a full-time job and not a part-time job, right? Well, people were highly critical, one, of uh, not so always the services that they got, but the idea that this was a grift. And it was exacerbated by the fact that you had people of color who were kind of leading the helm of this. So why does this look any different when I see rich, mostly white people trying to do this in Buckhead? I have to apply the same logic to it. And then one thing, my colleague, uh, Michael Owens, would be mad at me if I didn't say this on the air. When we're going to put this up for a referendum, the only people who get to vote are the people who are proposing to lead. Other people are directly affected by this, the rest of the city of Atlanta. So Milo would be yeah. saying, how come the whole city of Atlanta doesn't get to vote about whether or not this is going to be an amicable separation or not? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Mike, before we leave the subject, uh, let me ask you a couple questions, if I may. Number one, we've all been paying attention to the fact that Mayor Dickens in what ever since taking office has done his best to find a way to save uh, uh, Buckhead from being split off, increasing police services there, talking routinely with um, residents up there about what he wants to do to help them, but probably just as important, if not more so, also trying to strike an amicable relationship with Governor Kemp to have the governor uh, in, you know, a coordinated effort to work with him on a lot of issues, presumably including this. Um, so what happens uh, as this thing, if this thing, in fact, gets to the floor? I think you believe it actually could pass in the Senate. And then what? Where does Governor Kemp come into play? Well, my thoughts exactly. I think we will see that uh, Mayor Dickens, uh, overtures to Governor Kemp were well-timed and well-thought-over. Uh, I mentioned Lieutenant Governor Burke Jones, but the relationship uh, between uh, Mayor Dickens and Governor Kemp may ultimately also have a major impact on what happens next, uh, because these two gentlemen uh, may be able to come together to create some balance, or at least uh, to slow this train down. I don't Hadn't talked to either one of them about this, but I think the fact that uh, Mayor Dickens have, has laid groundwork uh, so that he does have an entree to the governor's office and to the Republican leadership will become more and more valuable 
uh, as this legislation continue to make, make its way through uh, the Georgia General Assembly. It will be fascinating to watch and more fascinating to read as uh, Patricia and her colleagues follow this. All right. So, Patricia, one final note before we move on. Uh, it, let's assume, let's just say for the sake of argument, that, that uh, Michael Thurman is correct, that this bill, two bills, could pass the Senate. The, the Speaker has not expressed a whole lot of interest in, 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 in a Buckhead cityhood bill. So the question becomes, even before Governor Kemp gets involved, what's the likelihood of this getting anywhere in the, in the House at this point? Yeah, so we know that, uh, to your point, um, the speaker said he's not interested in this. He said that he felt like um, Andre Dickens has done a good job in starting to address a number of these problems. Um, I think it's important to say that the crime in Buckhead is not all in people's minds. You know, there are murders, there's gun violence, there are grandmothers killed, uh, uh children killed, lots of um, gang activity. So it's not in people's minds, but the proposal from the Buckhead group does not allow for the fact that everybody still goes to the Fulton County DA's office, um, that uh, there's there are no walls and fences keeping people outside of the city. So the promise to solve crime is not in this bill. There, Lots of other stuff is in this bill, but the idea that the crime problem in Buckhead would go away is not is, is not addressed in this legislation because it just doesn't really work that way. Um, and, and, and Amy, before I've got to get to a break, I guess maybe one final point here. Regardless of just how far this bill gets, this is another example of a legislature which uh, feels it's entirely appropriate to weigh in on local matters of governance. I mean, right now, Cobb County is dealing with this in their commission where the legislature redrew county commission lines so that a Democratic commissioner would lose her seat. They went ahead and redrew the lines themselves and there are court battles over whether or not the the commission can overturn what the legislature has done. And in some ways, the Buckhead cityhood movement strikes me to be sort of similar in that the legislature, as Andra points out, is telling the city of Atlanta residents, sorry, if Buckhead wants to separate, you don't have any say in it at all. There is an interesting tension that is occurring over many times we hear arguments about we want there to be local control, but yet what is happening a lot is that many of these measures are actually those who don't live in the area suggesting that the local control is problematic. So they want to exert local control from afar and not actually respect the local control of those who are in the area because they disagree with it. And so there's an intriguing tension that's arising there. All right. Well, we're going to watch how this uh, proceeds. As as, um, uh, Patricia pointed out, this has now come out of the uh, committee uh, where the two bills uh, were being heard. And now we'll go to the Rules Committee. We'll see how soon it may come to the floor for a vote in the whole Senate. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and come back with a lot more to talk about on today's Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. 
It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Andrew Gillespie, Amy Steigerwald, Michael Thurman, and Patricia Murphy on today's, excuse me, Political Rewind. Patricia, Emily Coors, the foreperson of the special grand jury, uh, she finally made it. She was caricatured on Saturday Night Live this past weekend. And goodness knows she has gotten an enormous amount of attention for uh, all of the interviews she's given, including uh, to uh, your colleague, Tamar Hallerman at the AJC, She's had a certain ebullience and exuberance about the way in which she's talked about what the special grand jury looked at. She made it clear that they recommended that a number of indictments should follow their investigation. She sort of joked about the fact that Donald Trump said he was exonerated. And and so the I, I guess one of the questions, I, I, and I want to talk in a minute about how Drew Findling and Jennifer Little, Trump's attorneys, responded to all this. But before we even get there, um, there are some who wonder if the way she spoke in some ways tarnishes the ability of the of, of uh, Fannie Willis to move forward with indictments or whether there's going to be court action. What What is all this going to lead to, I guess, is my question. Well, so I think it's... Um important to know that Georgia law is different from federal law in terms of what grand jurors can say after the process is over. Um, State grand jurors can talk about what pretty much anything they did except the specific deliberations in the deliberation room. So what Emily Kors did was not illegal, um, not that would be a crime uh, or against the rules, but I think the, the entire reason that Fannie Willis called a special purpose grand jury was to create the sense and the confidence in people that this was a process outside of politics, outside of the personalities of Fannie Willis and Donald Trump, um, and that uh, just to give it more heft and weight that a thorough investigation had gone into this. And I think at least in the court of public opinion, this entire media blitz, um, including uh, Emily, of course, talking about it was just seemed very loosey goosey in the room. She was <laughs> holding onto a popsicle stick when she swore in David Ralston. She talked about how much they really liked Ralston, but, um, you know, didn't like other people. And she can't technically say who they recommended to be indicted, but she gave a lot of very, very strong hints making you wonder, like, what in the world is going on here? I don't think it will change what Fannie Willis plans to do. I think it may make her want to seek some distance between the Emily Kors interviews and the freshness of that image and the Saturday Night Live spoof, and then immediately announcing what she's decided to do. Those recommendations from the grand jury are non-binding. They don't affect whether she'll bring indictments or not, or who she would indict. These are just recommendations. Mm. But, uh, you know, I think it does give when Trump's attorneys complained, I think a lot of people understood where they were coming from. Yeah. Um, Amy, uh, Judge McBurney did give uh, uh, her a little 
cover, Emily Kaur is a little cover. He basically said she didn't do anything wrong. She followed the instructions I gave to all the special grand jurors, so she didn't cross the line. But of course, Drew Findling, who is one of the better known criminal defense lawyers in the Southeast. I mean, he he is a very aggressive criminal uh, defense attorney. He's probably a great dog to have in this fight if you're Donald Trump. Here's one of the things he said about all this. This type of carnival clown-like atmosphere that was portrayed over the course of the last 36 hours, speaking about the interviews, takes away from the complete sanctity and the integrity and, for that matter, the reliability of the investigation. Um, And he went on and um, said that um, basically uh, we think it's a travesty if there are criminal charges brought in this case because we are resolute in the fact that our client, meaning Donald Trump, is completely innocent. Amy? You're muted, Amy. Yes, I am. Now I'm not. We have, there's two different things going on here. One is the sort of political aspects of this, the media PR campaign. The other one is the legal side, right? On the political side, sure, maybe this has given some fodder to be able to continue this, right? They're also saying that the released report suggests that everyone was completely exonerated, which of course is not at all. We don't know that. In fact, if you read the report, what was most sort of intriguing about it is it is clearly not a political polemic. It is a very cut and dried, pithy recitation of what was said. Even the portion about the possibility that uh, the jurors believe that there might have been some perjury committed is very factual, very to the point. There is no additional sort of information that's given in there. And so the reality is legally, there is no there there. There was nothing that was, she did not go beyond the bounds. She did not say any information that is problematic. And, you know, the one line that a lot of people have sort of put on is where she said, oh, it would be lovely if, or I, we, we want them, it would be a waste that they didn't do something based on this work. Well, we've all said stuff like that, right? They gave up right? All of the grand jurors, a lot of time of their life. And what they're saying is, it's like, look, we took our job seriously and we would really respect it, you know, and like it if you therefore looked very carefully at what we said, because we put all this time into it. She's allowed to say that. That doesn't mean that Fannie Williams has to listen to it. It also doesn't suggest at all that the decisions that they reached were in any way biased. Instead, it's simply a comment of, we don't want this to be thrown out after all the work that we put into it. Here's the other side of it, though, that I think people are forgetting. This is not done, and Fannie Willis still has to, in fact, take this to a regular grand jury to get actual indictments. So this was the, here's a recommendation, and now if you want to go further, there's another grand jury process that actually still has to occur, and that group has to back up this decision to bring indictments. And so... There is nothing legally which has, in fact, tainted this. I, I agree 100 with, percent uh, with with Amy. I think that this, this is a lesson in just because you can doesn't mean that you should. <laughs> um, and sometimes I would ask my journalist friends to kind of save some people from themselves because clearly this child doesn't know any better. And I am using the word child like 
accurately. I think I'm the youngest person on the panel today because I think I had Amy beat by either three or 15 months. But I just want to be the crotchety Gen Xer who's like, what were you thinking? Oh my gosh, like you are making millennials look terrible. Um, and um, right, because you just like seriously, like you could get more out of this if you waited, right? Because discretion is the better part of valor. And if you had gotten a PR agent, which clearly is what you wanted and you needed because you wouldn't have gotten on TV and acted as flighty as you did if you had had one, right? You could have gotten a book deal out of this and written this and then gone on a media brunch and had me actually take it seriously. Like my mom and I last night, my mother and I last night, like my mother was horrified to, to learn that she was 30 years old because she was chalking it up to her being 22 and dumb. And it was just like, oh, no, 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 she's 30. And my oh. mom was like, 30? Oh my gosh. Right? That made it so much worse. And I can't believe that barely into middle age, I am the get off my law type of person, but this actually required that. And I think ultimately at the end of the day, the facts are what they are. I expect people to try to make political hay of it. I expect people that are dug into their support of Donald Trump to not change their minds based on what they've heard. And this only exacerbates that. But I'm confident that when this gets to the next step, that there are people who can put this sideshow aside and actually be able to discern the facts and be able to make a decision. <laughs> Mike, <laughs> there's no way I can articulate it any better than a <laughs> look, unforced error, horrible. I don't, you know, you can try to mitigate it or explain it away, uh, but it's not necessarily for the partisans on the left or the right. Uh, in the court of public opinion, this is having an impact. I'm just telling you. And it is, and you can't really, uh, you know, uh, shoo shoo it or push it away. It's having an impact. Once you get to Saturday Night Live, it's real. Once you caricature it there, <laughs> It has had and will continue to have an impact on how people uh, look at the investigation. Now, that shouldn't impact what the attorney, uh, the district attorney will ultimately do, and it won't. But we're just talking about public opinion right now. Um, Patricia, before we move on, I, I have to say that in addition to finding the enthusiastic way in which he uh, went, at, went on in these interviews to be odd, I couldn't help but think about people who have been demonized for um, the ways in which they have fought back against uh, President Trump. Um, and, and so there's a certain part of me that is a little worried about the kind of attacks that she is going to face, at the very least in social media and other contexts. I mean, in that sense, I kind of feel sorry for what she may be uh, going through. You know, I was thinking the exact same thing over the weekend because the attacks, I'm sure, are coming from the left and the right. The right because of the way they believe she may have handled her responsibilities as a poor woman, maybe not taking this as seriously as she should. And um, perhaps being I don't think we saw any bias in her comments, but it sure didn't sound like she had taken it seriously. She wasn't talking about it seriously. Um, but then I could imagine Democrats being very upset that this feels like it, it really um, has been a speed bump in the momentum of this process. It really feels like, not that it legally endangers the process, but it just doesn't look good. It makes it all look like a bit of a clown show, which is exactly what Donald Trump's lawyers are accusing them of. And it's hard to say that that's not the case, not knowing more about what else was happening 
in that grand jury. Um, other than Judge McBurney, I think is a very sober person and, and would conduct it um, in a way that it should. But this this has problems written all over it for both sides. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously, if you're uh, on the Trump side, especially you're going to use all this in some way for public relations, if nothing else, I suspect uh, if eventually we do see a grand jury convene and indictments against some significant people issued, that we will kind of quickly forget about uh, Coors. But for the time being, she has made herself a big part of the story. I want to get a couple of quick items in before we move on, because there's still I do want to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene in more depth. But before we have to get to a break, Mike Thurman, um, the, the city of Atlanta, Andre Dickens and other civic leaders are expressing enormous confidence that uh, the DNC is about to choose Atlanta for the 2024 Democratic Convention. I, I'm guessing you may have been part of the effort to bring it here because so many Democratic leaders have been. Um, but Chicago is still a contender. And over the weekend, the New York Times had a pretty good piece on why there are some advantages for Chicago, not Atlanta, one being the gun laws here, which uh, may make people worry about people being able to carry weapons into various venues that would be part of the convention, and the fact that Chicago is a big union town. Um, So I'm curious whether you think uh, that the city is being a little overly optimistic about Atlanta's chances. I do not. And haven't talked with Mayor Dickens and uh, Chair Lady Nakima Williams. Uh, Atlanta has put forward a very aggressive and I think convincing uh, plan to host the uh, convention. Uh, it's unfortunate that our friends in labor from out in the Midwest have attempted to leverage uh, some very unfortunate realities here against us. But the re- but think about uh, 2024. Georgia is the linchpin for any Democratic national victory right now, especially now that Florida is out of uh, seemingly out of reach for Democrats. Uh, North Carolina is becoming much more challenging. Georgia becomes the only, I think, real opportunity in the Southeast in terms of a Democratic victory. I think Senator Warnock's victory proved that. And ultimately, that is what will make the decision, the importance of Georgia to the national campaign. Well, Andre, not to take too much issue with Michael Thurman, but it really isn't the people from Chicago who necessarily uh, have been pointing out the gun laws here. After all, Midtown, the Midtown Music Festival canceled because of them. The Sweetwater Music Festival is moving to a private venue. And we also know that Democrats always think about union towns, although they don't necessarily pick them when it comes to their conventions. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to downplay the concerns and say they aren't real, but we live here in Atlanta. And so we know how to navigate things. So like, you know, with open carry laws, I think the one time I've seen somebody openly carrying in a way that I thought was in part because they could was, you know, in the anti part of the airport where somebody had a long gun because they just wanted to show it off. Um, and so most of us figure out how to navigate and how to manage that. Um, there will be metal detectors everywhere. So, you know, and that's normal for any convention, Republican or Democratic. I think that there is a lot to uh, say in Atlanta's favor, and I'm not just saying that in a self-interested way because I want to be able to cover and witness this election without having to travel um, or spend exorbitant amounts of of hotels, even (laughs) though that very much is part of my thinking. Um, uh, You know, it's the walkability. So 
the fact that Democrats had to have their caucus meetings and you can have them at the World Congress Center and walk across the street. In Philadelphia in 2016, they were meeting at the Philadelphia Convention Center and then you had to get on a bus in order to go down uh, to the sports complex, which was where the where the evening meetings were, be, were being held. There was the problem of them giving out too many tickets the last day. Um, then there were seats because I didn't get a seat. Um, I got my ticket early that day, thought I was fine, and then got in and could not find a seat. I was so mad and started walking up to friends with party connections going, what is wrong with all of y'all, right? So if something like that were to happen, you could go over to Mercedes-Benz probably and expand your capacity if necessary. There's lots of things about making this a walkable conference that I think would appeal. And Amy and I go to conferences in Chicago all the time, love the loop, hang out there all the time. It would be logistically a little more challenging though. All right. Um, I, I, I've got to get to our break. I do want to come back and talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene. So um, I, I had wanted to spend a couple minutes on Governor Kemp continuing to move away and form his own infrastructure uh, to in, uh, increase his national presence. And let me do it very quickly, Patricia. This weekend, Kemp was in Texas, part of a big donor forum, which included significant uh, people, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Chris Christie, Chris Sununu, uh, all put together by Carol Rove. And this week, uh, in this past week, the governor also, Patricia, said, I'm going to, I'm separating myself from the Georgia State Republican Party. Yes, a combination of new campaign finance laws and just the incredible hard right bolt of the activists of the Georgia Republican Party, specifically tr pro-Trump activists, who really gave uh, Kemp a hard time at the last state convention. I think all of that has combined for Kemp to say, I don't need this headache and the laws allow me to take my future into my own hands. So he set up his own fundraising committees, makes a big difference for him and all future governors and nominees. Amy, the, the, Governor Kemp clearly has a future that he wants to pursue in elective politics. Uh, give me about 30 seconds on that before we break. There's a presidential race in 2024, which is wide open. There's also the reality that there will be a Senate seat up for re-election in 2026. And so it looks as though Governor Kemp is preparing for one, if not both, of those possibilities. All right, let's take our final break. The show back with more in a moment. Patricia Murphy over the weekend, two of my favorite columnists wrote columns about Marjorie Taylor Greene, Maureen Dowd of the New York Times, and you, uh, Patricia. And and I want to talk about it because um, because we can't. It, we're, it's a conundrum. Marjorie Taylor Greene wants to outrage us. It helps her raise money. It gives her more prominence. And so we are feeding the machine when we talk about her. And we get criticism from our listeners sometimes. But she has now become a leading voice of the Republican Party. And that's a different matter than what it was before. But I want to read the lead to your column They'd been on the rocks for a while, Marjorie Taylor Greene and the world most of us recognize as reality while we sit in living rooms instead of green rooms and try to solve our problems instead of inflaming them. 
And, of course, the latest episode has to do with her believing it's time for red and blue states to go their separate ways. Yeah, you know, we really struggle with how often to cover Marjorie Taylor Greene's statements. They are designed to be inflammatory and get attention. Um, and they're they're just not always, um, you, you hesitate to give them more attention. However, because of her alliance with Kevin McCarthy, she is now one of the most powerful voices in that House Republican caucus. And she sits on committees that pass actual legislation. Um, <laughs> That can really affect the entire country. So it's very important, I believe, now for us to pay close attention to Green. I wrote a column about these last co comments because, first of all, just it is not okay for a Georgia member of Congress to call for a civil war and have that go unanswered. That is ridiculous. Um, secondly, the the kind of horrific reality she's painting about this country, I just don't recognize. And I certainly don't recognize it in Georgia. And so that was really the point. Like she has just, she has completely divorced herself from reality. And um, we have other leaders in the state who are trying to solve problems. And she is just not one of them. Um, Mike, uh, Maureen uh, Dowd, uh, compared uh, what the face of Georgia politics, which at one time was Jimmy Carter, and uh, to what it is now, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she says, as opposed President Carter's decency and honesty shown. Carter cared about building furniture and relationships. The nasty new face of Georgia politics cares about dividing. Mike? History cares the final ballot in a political arena. We analyze and evaluate the most recent uh, ballots or outcomes of the most recent election. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene will be a footnote uh, in history. Uh, hopefully she won't do too much damage in the process. Jimmy Carter, in, in contrast, will be remembered as one of the great, not just presidents, but one of the great Americans uh, to have ever held the office. So that's the difference. And we live in a, what you're seeing, Marjorie Taylor Greene is just the most recent iteration of that brand of politics that's driven by social media and Twitter and all of those things. Uh, she's just the most recent. She will come and she will go. But legitimate, concerned, ethical men and women on both sides of the aisle will continue to determine the ultimate fate of this nation. Amy? Some of the concern is to degree to which it's giving voice and um, sort of authority to much more extreme uh, views, right? Suggesting succession is not exactly a minor thing, right? To try to suggest that we're going to really break apart the entire nation. And I guess, I don't know, have the United States of red America and blue America? Right. As uh, you know, Patricia's columns adroitly points out, where does Georgia fit in on that? Right. What do we do with states like that that aren't this sort of clear red and blue? Right. Are we supposed to fight over it? Right. Whose house are we supposed to go live at on the weekends? Are we trading off? But it also really gets to a sort of broader point of this belief that we can't overcome differences. Right. Many of the things where we see policy disagreements it's not actually a fundamental disagreement. Rather, it is there's an agreement that there's things we need to address and there's differing ways of doing it. 
But part of the problem is, um, as a recent study showed, we have shifted from viewing members of the party that we're not in, not as sort of members of the country and people for which we are working with, but rather as enemies, right? And the, the analogy that this particular study used, which I think is really quite apt, is they compare it to sports teams, right? When you are on the field, you have to win, right? Atlanta United had the tome opener the other day against San Jose, and gosh darn it, like, I wanted them to destroy them. I'm sure there were nice people over there, but I don't care. We were supposed to win, right? And they're supposed <laughs> to lose. And when you have winning and losing, there is no room for compromise, right? Politics doesn't work that way, right? The creation of policy doesn't work that way. It's not a winning and a losing, but if we view it as that, and if we view the other side as evil, as traitors, it's incredibly difficult to actually make policy, but it also fosters these greater divisions and suggests that we can't view the other person just as having a disagreement, right? Instead, it is they need to be destroyed. And the problem is, is that Marjorie Taylor Greene is giving voice to that and is getting committee slots and airtime to give voice to that and furthering it for other people. You, you know, not only that, there is just the idea that suggesting secession might be sedition. You know, just want to put that out there. Um, right. And that we fought a civil war. And one of the things we should have taken from the civil war is once you're in, you can't you, you don't leave. Um, and especially not on these terms, especially not when it's practical. So like Patricia, I struggled with should I like tweet this out and say something about it? And in the end, chose to because the idea is so dangerous. And then also because I think that there are people who don't care or but who should care or people who are kind of undecided. And it's like, let me just give you a little bit more information about why we should not consort with this kind of these kinds of statements or kind of behavior. And so that's why it is so, so problematic. Um, and so why, you know, I would encourage people in the 14th district to rethink their choices. There are people who will represent strongly conservative views who won't do it in this particular way. Well, I do think the the point that is most important to come out of this is not just the outrageousness of Marjorie Taylor Greene, but the fact that this notion that we should split ourselves into two essentially countries is, in fact, uh, got favor among any number of conservatives out there. And so she fuels that fire. In, in Oregon, there are, I think, 14 counties in the western part of the state that feel they are more conservative than the rest of the state. And so they have been fighting a battle for months now to try to become part of Idaho, which they feel is more in keeping with the political philosophy of the people there. Mike, this is happening and is probably going to continue to happen in small ways and large, um, and, and, and it's troubling. And we're almost out of time, so you got 30 seconds, Mike. Respond well, to the that. Congress lady probably should be reminded that there were some people who tried this before. This secession, it didn't work out that well for them. So history teaches us 700,000 people dead, billions of dollars in revenue lost. So she can try it again, but it, it will probably end up in a much worse situation than did what it did over 150 years ago. All right. I do think a conversation about the, the you know, the theoretical concept of splitting up the country 
and the constitutional reasoning why it's all wrong is worthy of a further conversation. We'll put Marjorie Taylor Greene aside for the time being and at another point discuss that aspect of it. Amy Steigerwald, Andre Gillespie, Michael Thurman, Patricia Murphy, thanks for getting the week off to a terrific start. I'm Bill Nygut. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, please, everybody, take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye. <laughs>